Marvin's Chrome Iron Spherical Burglar Safes Cannot be sledged, cannot be wedged, cannot be drilled. Call and see them or send for descriptive circular. Marvin and Company, Principal Warehouses, 265 Broadway, New York. 721 Chestnut Street, Philadelphia. 108 Bank Street, Cleveland, Ohio. And for sale by our agents in the principal cities throughout the United States. I the air with the greatest of A daring young man on the side. Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 19. 150 years ago this week, there was a spectacular safe robbery in Syracuse. This is from the Syracuse Daily Courier and Union, Syracuse, New York, Wednesday morning, August 12, 1868. Kugler & Zetwick's Flower and Feed Store Destroyed by Fire, The Safe Blown Open, and the Contents Robbed by Burglars Who Set Fire to the Building. One of the most daring cases of burglary and arson was committed in this city yesterday morning that we have ever been called upon to announce in our columns. About half past two o'clock, a man on a canal boat discovered that the large wooden building situated on the berm bank of the canal at 51 East Water Street, occupied by Messrs. Kugler and Zetwick as a flower and feed store, was on fire, He immediately gave the alarm, which was quickly responded in by the steamers, which soon extinguished the flames, but not until the entire contents and interior woodwork of the building were consumed or badly damaged. Subsequent investigation shows the fact that the office had been entered, the safe blown open and robbed of its contents, and afterwards a fire had been lighted under a large desk standing by a wooden partition. The inflammable nature of the contents of the desk caused the flames to spread rapidly, and in a few moments the whole interior of the store was in flames. The safe was rifled of about $80 in money, and several valuable meerschaum pipes belonging to one of the firm were carried off. The safe door was left open, and the books and papers in the safe were badly scorched by the fire. It is not known whether the desks were rifled or not as they were destroyed, the fire being placed under the largest one. We understand that the building is owned by Mrs. Mitchell of Casanova and was insured for $1,500. The loss sustained by Mr. Kugler and Zetwick is estimated at between $4,000 and $5,000, on which they are fully insured. Hugh here. Note that the newspaper writers are focused on what was lost and how much of that was covered. That's going to be a recurring theme. 
Skipping over to the Syracuse Daily Standard article about the same event, this one says, The loss sustained by Mr. K and Z on stock is estimated at from $4,000 to $5,000, on which there was an insurance of $4,000, and on fixtures, $800, with no insurance. The building is of wood, lined with brick, and we hardly think the main timbers are particularly damaged, at least not so, but that it may readily be repaired. It belongs to Mrs. Mitchell of Casanova and was insured for $1,500. Hugh here again. So note that there are differences between the two articles. Inaccuracies tend to creep in in the transmission of the information to the newspaper office. But again, the important point here is everyone is obsessed with what was lost and how much of that was insured. So, that arson-assisted safe robbery took place 150 years ago this week, but why did I choose that topic in the first place? Well, that ad that I read at the opener for Marvin's Chrome Iron Spherical Burglar Safe is one hell of an eye-catcher, and I kept seeing it crop up in the 1868 Syracuse newspapers that I was reading. Oh, and by the way, there are some impressive images in the show notes, so even more so than usual, be sure to check them out. Anyway, I got curious about these spherical safes. Someone was spending a good chunk of change on advertising, and that meant there was a market for it. And that meant people were worried about safe robbers. So how often did safe cracking happen in Syracuse? I mean, I grew up thinking of safe cracking as some silly, campy thing straight from a movie. I didn't think of it as something that happened in real life. So I went digging on FultonHistory.com, like you do, and here's what I found for Syracuse. Now keep in mind, the following list is limited to attempted safe robberies in the Syracuse area during the 1860s. Here's the first one. Central City Daily Courier, Syracuse, Tuesday, May 29, 1860. Attempted burglary and horse theft at Jamesville. On Saturday night last, the office of Robert Dunlap at Jamesville was entered by burglars and an attempt made to blow the safe open by powder. The lock resisted the efforts, however, and traces of burned powder were visible about it next morning without accomplishing the desired result. Failing in the effort to rob the safe, the burglars proceeded to the barn and led out a fine span of mares, taking with them a coat belonging to the servant man. Having secured this plunder, they left without creating any alarm. What is singular herewith is that the animals returned to the stable at about seven o'clock of Sunday morning. It is presumed that daylight broke on the thieves before they could get into secure quarters, and they were obliged to turn the animals loose. No trace of the robbers has been discovered up to the present writing. The same premises was similarly visited about three years since, and the identical safe robbed of some $500. Now, get a load of this article that I found on the same page. Lily's Burglar and Fireproof Safes, an Experiment We find in the Olean Advertiser the statement of a test of the strength of one of Lily's Burglar and Fireproof Safes, which may be interesting to our businessmen. The Advertiser says the testing party, as we learn, are attached to the safe establishment of S.C. Herring and Company of New York. 
They came fully prepared to break into the safe, if we may judge from the quantity of tools, sledges, hammers, etc. they brought with them. The sledge used was an 18-pounder, well hung upon a hickory handle three feet and a half in length, and swung by a strong man, of course familiar with breaking cast iron. The safe was locked and turned down upon its face, supported by one or two oak sticks, four by six. About the center of the back was found what is called a blow, perhaps ten inches in length and one inch in width. This was determined upon as the point of attack. Everything being in readiness, the pile-driver sledge came down with terrible power and rapidity. The empire block, in which are six stores, the building being three stories high, the safe was in the second story, shook and trembled from foundation to ridgeboard, as if moved by an earthquake. Some seventy or more blows were struck before any evidences of caving in were discernible. Then a cold chisel was brought to bear, one hundred fifty or more blows with the sledge upon this being deemed necessary to an accomplishment of the designs of the testing parties. This made a small aperture, which, by the addition of six or eight hundred more blows with the sledge and small hammer, was enlarged sufficiently to admit an arm, and the money was seized by the maulers. In regard to the boring, setting the safe back upon its feet and bracing it behind, an oak stick before mentioned, some eight feet in length, was prepared as a lever power with which to hold the drill. So dividing the timber as to give the shortest end to the drill, the long end was held up to the drill and the drill to the safe by a crowbar with the strength of two men lifting upon it. The drill at first seemed to cut, but a few minutes demonstrated that the safe was made of much the hardest metal. An hour spent in this manner and all further efforts to drill into the safe were abandoned. The drill, with all this power attached to it, only sank into the safe about an eighth of an inch. This, we believe, comprises all the facts. We deem Mr. Lilly's safe the champion in this contest. The tools used and the means provided for breaking into his safe are never employed by burglars. No safe, we venture to assert, could be entered with the means employed in this instance without arousing the whole village. Besides, burglars never travel with pile-driving sledges, crowbars, and other tools, the weight of which must have been in this instance fully 250 pounds. These safes are for sale in Syracuse by E. P. Hopkins at his house furnishing store on East Genesee Street, a few doors west of the Courier buildings. Hugh here, so that's one unsuccessful attempt at safe robbery and one long article that amounts to an advertisement for a burglar-proof safe. Moving on to the Syracuse Daily Journal of Wednesday evening, July 10th, 1861. Fruitless Burglary The coal office of Mr. N. Cobb on East Water Street was broken into sometime between Saturday evening and Monday morning, and the desks rifled of their contents, a few papers of no use to anyone but Mr. C. An attempt to break into the safe was not successful. Hugh here, so we're at 0 for 2. Now the next article is a fun one. 
This is from the Syracuse Daily Courier and Union, Syracuse, New York, Tuesday morning, April 19, 1864. Daring Burglary Upon the First National Bank The officers of this institution, located in Bags Block, South Salina Street, discovered yesterday forenoon that the bank had been burglariously entered some time after its close on Saturday and its opening for business yesterday morning. The evidence to this effect was apparent by indentations upon the door leading to the banking room, through which the burglars gained access after having pried it open with a crowbar or some such article, Surrounding a table in the bank office was three or four chairs, as if there had been a party of burglars engaged in the work, and a pitcher and goblet placed upon the table also gave evidence that beer must have been brought in from some of the neighboring saloons, and that the party very coolly engaged in a free and easy social entertainment of their own getting up without any apparent fear of detection. It is evident from this that they were in no hurry to leave the premises after having entered it. When the officers of the bank entered it yesterday morning, the gas lights were found still burning, with the blinds closed, as usual after the business of the day, from which fact it may be inferred that the burglary was committed during Saturday night or the early part of the morning. The efforts to blow open the safe proved ineffectual, although the hinges were slightly started, as was the inside plate of the door. A small hole had been cut with a cold chisel immediately over the lock, where powder was inserted and fired, but it did not yield, although from the remains of burnt cartridges laying about the floor it is evident that the burglars renewed their attempts upon the safe a great number of times, and with determined energy. The safe could not be opened by the bank officers yesterday morning until the arrival of Mr. D.S. Gear, of which firm the safe was purchased, when he succeeded in forcing open the door with the aid of a crowbar. The safe is one of Herring's fireproof, and its contents were found undisturbed as when left on Saturday evening, although it is not designated as burglar-proof. Nothing else in the banking room was in the least way molested, and even a drawer containing some pennies and revenue stamps was not interfered with. Even had the burglars succeeded in blowing open the safe, they would have secured no booty for their pains, as the money is kept in the vault of a neighboring bank. The institution had not been visited by any of its clerks or officers since Saturday, and no clue whatever can be had to the burglars, although it is surprising that they were not discovered in their bold raid upon the bank, as it is located in a prominent locality that is much traveled by our citizens both night and day, as well as the occupants of the stores and offices in the same block with it. It was one of the most bold and daring attempts at unsuccessful burglary that has ever been attempted in our city. Hugh here. And we're 0 for 3. Moving on to the Syracuse Daily Courier and Union of Monday morning, March 27, 1865. Burglary at the Provost Marshal's Office. Large Hall of Money. It is no wonder that the example of the present corrupt administration and the frauds committed by its pimps, tools, 
Pothouse loafers and illustrian drunkards should school the people everywhere into the commission of robberies and crimes, the like of which cannot be equaled in any country on the face of the globe, and a parallel for which the dominions of Pluto must be searched in the vain hope of finding even there the abode of scoundrels and vagabonds of the most ultra-stripe anything so audacious as to palliate the rascalities practiced under the reign of the Lincoln dynasty. The provost marshal's office in this city was the scene of a most extraordinary and daring burglary committed during Saturday night or the earlier hours of Sunday morning, which has robbed the poor soldiers now enlisting here of a large amount of the blood money they had received for the noble sacrifice they were making their country in entering upon the work of slaughter which has been going on for the past four years. The particulars of the burglary are these. It is usual to leave a guard of two persons in the provost marshal's overnight, and the persons left in its charge usually sleep there. One is A.M. Jerome, who resides out of the city, and the other is A.A. Skink, both of whom, as we are informed, were employed as clerks with the guardianship of the office and its treasures by night. The former went to his home in Manlius on Saturday evening, leaving the latter in charge of the office. On the sounding of the fire alarm about two o'clock Sunday morning, Skink left the provost marshal's office and rushed to the scene of conflagration, leaving the door securely locked behind him. On his return from the fire and entering the office, he at once detected the smell of burned gunpowder, and immediately upon turning on the full jet of gas light, which he had left partially burning, he discovered the safe in as complete wreck as Butler's Dutch Gap Canal presented after the giving way of its bulkhead. The lock had been blown open by an explosion of gunpowder, and the doors torn from their heavy fastenings. A hole had been drilled through the safe over the heavy lock, which admitted of a large quantity of powder, which, when ignited, tore off the lock with throwing back its bolts, ripped the heavy inside fireproof lining from the door, and scattered it in all directions through the room in fragmentary particles. A pile of soldiers' blankets and overcoats had been carefully spread over the massive iron doors of the safe so that they would deaden the sound of the explosion and thus prevent too sudden an alarm. The provost marshal's office is in the Pike and Keeler block with an entrance from Fayette Street, and many persons occupy rooms for lodging in the block. The sound of the gunpowder explosion was heard by several parties in the building, but there is usually so much noise about it, together with the fact of its being used for the purpose it is, with so many soldiers about it night and day, that no farther attention was paid to the circumstances at the time. The safe contained a large amount of money, nearly $40,000 in all, in various sums which were done up in packages and placed therein for the safe keeping of enlisted men. Of the soldiers' money there was $18,600 placed in envelopes being that which they receive for bounties. 
Mr. Jedediah Barber of Homer had $10,000 in U.S. bonds of 730s, which he had purchased on that day, and which Commissioner Anderson had placed in the safe with $2,500 of his own money, intending to send the package to the former gentleman by the Binghamton train of Saturday evening. No train went out over that road from this city as expected, and this, together with the sum already mentioned, fell into the hands of the burglars. John Jackson, an attaché of the office, is also minus $600, which he kept in the safe for the special purpose of paying a debt as soon as it had accrued. Dr. Knapp is a sufferer to the tune of $2,100, but most of this being in certificates of deposit, drafts, and checks payable to order. His real loss will probably not exceed six or $800 in currency, as payment on the papers has been stopped. There was script deposited to the credited of last year's enlistments to the amount of $2,400, with a deposit of $300 by a friend to the credit of a soldier, and the 7th Ward Recruiting Committee had in the safe a deposit of $150, the aggregate reaching to the large amount of $31,650, making a snug sum for the operations of the burglars extending from the first breaking out of the fire already referred to and the return of Mr. Skink to the office. Immediately on his discovering the state of affairs, he proceeded to the St. Charles Hotel where Dr. Knapp is stopping, and after giving him the alarm, reported the matter to Chief of Police Otis. This officer took with him a posse, and after making a thorough search of the premises, sent out scouts in all directions of the city, but up to the present writing, no clue has been discovered as to the burglars. It is perhaps the most daring burglary we have yet been called upon to report in this vicinity. <laughs> I love the courier. They're spinning this bank robbery as a reflection of the corruption of the Lincoln administration. Wonderful. Anyway, now we're at Safe Robbers 1, Safes 3. Moving on to the Syracuse Daily Standard of Wednesday morning, March 7th, 1866. $750 Reward On the night of February 28, 1866, the office of the Gas Light Company of Syracuse was broken open and the safe carried away and robbed of its contents, viz. Hugh here. And then there's a list of eight bonds. Three for $1,000 two for $500 and three for $100, along with all their serial numbers and dates. And then it goes on with this. A reward of $300 will be paid for the recovery of the above bonds, or a corresponding reward for any part of them. Also stolen at the same time, the following property of the Gas Light Company. $190 in bills of various denominations, $240 in postal currency of various denominations, $6.68 in pennies, and a check given by Amos Benedict, Esquire, to Gas Light Company, draws on Syracuse City Bank for $30.55.
An additional reward to the above of $240 will be paid for the detection and conviction of the perpetrators of the burglary, and a suitable reward for the recovery of the above property or any part of it. R. Hebbard, Treasurer of the Gas Light Company of Syracuse, March 1, 1866. All right, safe robbers coming up from behind. Let's see what else we got. Syracuse Daily Journal, Wednesday, November 14, 1866. Counterfeiter held for trial. The Oswego commercial advertiser of yesterday contains the following. Most of our readers will remember that one James Baker, alias John Burns, was arrested in this city a week or two ago for attempting to pass a $100 counterfeit note on the First National Bank of Boston. Burns had a partial examination before Commissioner Perry, and the final examination was put down for today, the 12th instant. Since then, Deputy U.S. Marshal Reed has received a letter from Deputy U.S. Marshal Benedict of Ogdensburg throwing some further light on this man's character and previous career. It seems there are three brothers in this family, one of whom was arrested at Ogdensburg some time ago for highway robbery and barely escaped the state prison. The lawyer who defended him says this John Burns is the same person and he has been running a high career of crime. He is one of the party who blew open the safe and robbed the provost marshal's office in Syracuse about two years ago. Four days after that transaction, he blew open a safe and robbed an exchange office in Ogdensburg, then went over into Canada and robbed a safe and store near Brockville, taking $1,500. His examination was concluded today, and he was required to give bail in the sum of $2,000, committed in default of bail. Hugh here. So that's another theme you'll notice in the coming articles. This guy successfully robbed three different safes, but in the end, he was caught. So in the long term, doesn't seem to pay. But also note how the echoes of that provost marshal's office robbery reverberate throughout the Syracuse newspapers for years. Moving forward to 1868, we return to that combined arson and safe robbery at Kugler and Zeitwick from 150 years ago this week. And those six instances of attempted safe robbery are all I was able to find in Syracuse newspapers for the 1860s. So it looks like the safe robbers are batting about 500 during that period, and they only went up to bat six times. So why all the advertisements? Why is there enough fear, uncertainty, and doubt to make those ads profitable? Well, if we expand our search to include Syracuse newspaper articles about safe robberies that occurred elsewhere, oh boy, we get a lot more. Check this out. March 9th, 1860, Central City Daily Courier. St. Louis, March 8th. The storehouses of H.J. Galbraith, Mason, and Atterbury at Waverly, Missouri were burned on the first. Loss not stated. Galbraith's safe was robbed of nearly $5,000. October 28, 1861, Syracuse Daily Journal. Now this is about an event in Albany, but I only know that because I did some further digging. 
they did a lousy job of labeling this article. Anyway, here it is. A safe robbed. The warehouse of Schoonmaker, Johnson, and Morris was entered early this morning by burglars. The safe was blown open and $1,800 stolen. Besides the following checks, which have been endorsed by Shoemaker and Johnson, and it goes on to list several dozen checks with the names and amounts, and then it ends with, The burglars stole a boat in which they crossed the river, and it is supposed took the first train for New York City. Hugh here. So, another recurring theme. Boats. This is one of the theatrical elements of these robberies that make them seem tailor-made for grabbing the public attention. Often the thieves would escape by boat. Alright, moving on to December 17, 1862, the Syracuse Courier and Union has this to say. The safe steamer Planet was robbed of $57,000 at Helena last Thursday. Hugh here. So I got curious about that one and did some more digging. This is from the Daily Ohio Statesman, December 17, 1862. I'm going to read you this whole section because I want to place safe robberies within the context of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Remember, this is only a year and a half into the war. Cairo, December 16th. General Grant has issued an order respecting Kentucky that... As the state has fulfilled the requirements of the Constitution of the United States and laws of Congress by choosing loyal men to fill state offices and execute the laws, military authority is prohibited from any interference and will not be used except to suppress riots and mob resistance to the laws. All civil authority that can be executed at military posts will be permitted. The safe of the steamer Planet was robbed of $7,000 at Helena last Thursday. Cotton is arriving at Memphis freely. General Grant issued an order that after the 15th, Oxford will be open for trade and travel. Hugh here. So you can see how the Syracuse article got garbled. First, it says the safe steamer Planet, not the safe of the steamer planet. Secondly, it says $57,000, whereas the Daily Ohio Statesman article says $7,000. So let's continue on with some more versions of this. This is from the Lockport Daily Journal and Courier, December 17, 1862. The safe of the steamer planet was robbed of from $5,000 to $7,000 at Helena last Thursday. Cotton is arriving at Memphis freely. General Grant has issued an order that after the 15th, Oxford will be open for trade and travel. And this is from the Louisville Daily Journal of December 17, 1862. The safe on the steamer Planet was robbed of from fifty to $60,000 at Helena last Thursday. Hugh here. Are you catching all this? So far we've got at least three different versions of the amount stolen from the steamer Planet. If you look at these articles in the show notes, it becomes really obvious what happened. Someone along the chain of news sources must have telegraphed that the safe of the steamer Planet was robbed of from five to seven thousand dollars. Five dash seven thousand 
and someone must have interpreted that as 57,000, and someone else spitballed it as 50 to 60,000, it really got mangled. There's a second account of the same event from the Lockport Daily Journal and Courier of December 20th, 1862, which gives a different amount. This one says, The safe of the steamer Planet was robbed of $57,000 at Helena last Thursday. Now I'm going to read you one last article that includes this, and again, I'm going to read this whole thing in order to place it in the context of the Civil War. The World, New York, Friday, December 19th, 1862. The War in the Southwest. Return of General Hovey's expedition to Helena, Arkansas. General Sherman at Memphis and General Grant at Oxford, Mississippi. Cairo, Illinois, December 16th. General Hovey's expedition has returned to Helena, Arkansas. The results of the expedition sum up 160 rebels killed, wounded, and captured, and our loss 34 killed, wounded, and missing. The army of General Sherman has returned to Memphis. The rebel army of Mississippi is said to be between Jackson and Canton. General Grant is still at Oxford with his forces. An immediate advance of our forces is not expected. Two regiments of Federal infantry and one company of cavalry surprised a band of rebels, numbering 2,000, at Tuscumbia on Saturday, completely routing them. Their loss in killed and wounded is unknown. Our forces captured 70 prisoners, a number of horses, and burned the baggage of the rebels. Our loss, 4 killed and 14 wounded. General Grant has issued an order respecting Kentucky that, as the state has fulfilled the requirements of the Constitution of the United States and laws of Congress by choosing loyal men to fill state offices and execute the laws, the military authority is prohibited from any interference and is not to be used except to suppress riots and mob resistance to the laws. All civil authority that can be executed at military posts will be permitted. The safe of the steamer Planet was robbed of from $5,000 to $7,000 at Helena on Thursday. Cotton is arriving at Memphis freely. General Grant has issued an order that, after December 15th, Oxford will be open for trade and travel. Hugh here. So you see how newspaper editors took news sources and stuck them together and excised bits like Lego? You look at enough of these articles side-by-side side and you start to see how easily they can get mangled. Alright, moving on to March 21st, 1863. Here's a really dramatic article from the Syracuse Courier and Union which, again, places these safe robberies in the context of the war. Train thrown off the track by guerrillas. Louisville, March 30th. The Nashville train was thrown off the track yesterday by guerrillas, by obstructions a mile above Richland Station, and not at Woodburn Station, as previously stated. The locomotive tender and two express cars were smashed. The guerrillas fired into the rear containing women and children. The guerrillas called themselves Morgan's men. The passengers returned the fire, killing one and wounding eight guerrillas. 
One of the passengers was slightly wounded. The guerrillas commenced paroling, I believe they meant patrolling, at the head of the train and took away officers' sidearms, rifled their carpet sacks, etc. The Adams Express safe was robbed of its contents. A part of it was subsequently recovered. A mail in the train was seized but was recovered. The conductor ran back a mile to stockade. Soldiers came up at double quick, recaptured the train, and drove off the guerrillas, wounding several and taking four prisoners. General Brannan and Lieutenant McKee, who were in the rear car, were neither captured or paroled, but are safe at Nashville. Hugh here. So as you can see, a lot of these safe robberies are byproducts of the war. May 14, 1863, Syracuse Courier and Union. Safe robbed of $3,000. New York, May 12th. On Monday night, through the negligence of the officers of the Sumter, two quartermasters stole the safe out of the paymaster's room, put it onto a boat, and escaped with it. The facts have been forwarded to the department, and the officers will probably be court-martialed and dismissed. The safe contained about $3,000. September 23, 1865, Syracuse Daily Courier and Union. Detroit, September 22nd. The store of Charles Dawson was entered by burglars last night. The safe was blown open and robbed of over $20,000 in government bonds. September 26, 1865, Syracuse Daily Courier and Union. Boston, September 25th. The Concord National Bank of Concord, Massachusetts was entered between 1 and 2 o'clock today while the cashier was about at dinner and the safe blown open and robbed of $100,000 consisting of United States bonds and money. A large reward will be offered for the money when the number of these bonds are made out. These bonds belonged to the bank and to individuals who deposited them for safekeeping. This next article from the Syracuse Daily Journal of October 6, 1865, contains two attempted safe robberies of military facilities. From Fortress Monroe, Captain Wheeler, assistant quartermaster at Eastville, has been robbed of his safe and about $4,000 in currency. The case will be investigated. I had to look that one up. Eastville is on the shore of Maryland, right across the water from Fortress Monroe in Virginia. Now this second one is under the header, Crimes and Casualties. Brevet Brigadier General Briscoe, late colonel of the 199th Pennsylvania Regiment, who has been in command of the Lynchburg Military District, was arrested in Lynchburg on Friday in the act of attempting to rob the government of $82,000. General Briscoe comes of a highly respectable Irish family attached to the Episcopal Church. He was a favorite aide on the staff of the late Major General Philip Kearney in the early years of the war, serving most credibly in this relation with the last acting Brigadier General James E. Mallon, killed in battle at Bristow Station, October 1863. The trial of General Briscoe commenced at Washington on Wednesday. Captain Alberger, assistant quartermaster, testified strongly against him, 
he stated the details of a proposition by the general that he robbed the safe in such a manner to throw suspicion elsewhere, and that if he was arrested, he, the general, would take care of him before the court-martial. Hugh here. So as you can see, people were aghast to find that a military man, and a religious man to boot, would be so immoral as to steal from a military safe. I suppose that during the Civil War, the U.S. military had a heretofore unseen concentration of cash, and that was just too tempting for some guys, and that our cultural and military sensibilities just hadn't caught up with that yet. All right, now we come to a really sad one. This is the Syracuse Daily Journal of Monday evening, October 9th, 1865. From Philadelphia, The Arch Street Murder. Philadelphia, October 7th. The victim in the Arch Street murder was a colored man, aged 40 years, instead of a boy. The burglars took from him the key of the safe and robbed it of $2,500 in notes. Hugh here. That was obviously a follow-up, but it took me a long time to find the original story. This is from the Daily Davenport Democrat of Davenport, Iowa, Saturday, October 7th, 1865. It's a story from Philadelphia about three murders that were committed on the same night. Here's the third one. Burglars were secreted in White's Dental Depot on Arch Street, and when the door was opened by a boy, they seized and strangled him to death with a rope and escaped with a portion of their plunder. Note that that one doesn't mention a safe. Now here's the New York Herald, October 8, 1865. Again, it's a story about three murders in less than 24 hours in Philadelphia. And here's the third paragraph. Burglars were secreted in White's Dental Depot, Arch Street, this morning, at 6 o'clock, when the store was opened by a colored man, aged 40 years. The burglars seized and strangled him to death with a rope, and then took from him the key of the safe, and plundered it of $2,500 in notes. Hugh here. Now here's the Baltimore Daily Commercial, October 9, 1865. Again, a story about those same three murders, and here's the third part. The third and most horrible of all is an occurrence in the heart of the city. Burglars secreted in White's Dental Depot on Arch Street this morning at 6 o'clock when the store was opened by the boy, seized the poor lad and strangled him to death with a rope and then escaped with a portion of the plunder which they had piled up ready for removal when the boy made his appearance. Hugh here. Then there's a long explanation of the first murder, and then, at the very end, Correction. Philadelphia, October 7th. The victim of the murder in Arch Street was a colored man, aged 40 years. The burglar took from him the key of the safe and plundered it of $2,500 in notes. Hugh again. So, you get the idea. There are a lot of these articles. You can see all of them in the show notes. But the point is, this is an excellent example of the news getting mangled in transmission. It's sadly clear what happened here. The original report must have called this 40-year-old black victim a boy, and the people who picked up the story took that to mean a young man and ran with that. Then, later, when they corrected it, it sort of got grafted or tacked onto the original story or presented as though it was its own story. 
Now, a couple weeks later, we see a follow-up to this. This is from the Baltimore Daily Commercial of October 20, 1865. Hugh Donnelly has been arrested, charged with being concerned in the murder of the porter in White's Dental Depot a few days since, and been identified by a hardware dealer as a man who bought the chisel which was left by the murderers in Mr. White's fireproof. Again, you can see all these variant stories in the show notes, but the upshot is he was identified by the hardware dealer who sold him the chisel with which he intended to break open the safe. Obviously, that plan changed when the porter came in the door. He killed the porter, took his key, and opened the safe with that. The saddest part about all this is that the newspaper articles name Hugh Donnelly as the murderer, but nowhere can I find the name of that 40-year-old porter. Okay, moving ahead to November 20th, 1865. Again, the Syracuse Daily Courier and Union. San Francisco, November 14th. About 3 o'clock yesterday morning, two disguised men entered the office of the What Cheer House when only one clerk was in charge. They knocked him senseless by a blow on the head, took a key from his pocket, and with it unlocked a safe and robbed it of $30,000 in gold. The robbers then escaped unmolested, and no track of them has yet been discovered. And moving forward to December 6, 1865, Syracuse Daily Standard. The railroad depot at Milford, Massachusetts was broken into on Thursday night and the safe blown open and robbed of about $100. One of the burglars was found on the floor the next morning with his skull fractured by a piece blown from the safe. Holy shit! All right, I dug into that and found a little more detail in the Baltimore Daily Commercial, Monday morning, December 4, 1865. From Boston, the name of the burglar who was mortally wounded by the explosion of a safe in the Milford Railroad office is ascertained to be Amos Lee, an Englishman. Wow, he came a long way to get his head caved in. Now, moving on to Saturday morning, January 6, 1866, Syracuse Daily Standard. A scouting party sent in pursuit of the man who robbed the safe of Paymaster Ellis in Kansas of $30,000 overtook them in Plate County, Missouri, and all the money except $4,000 was recovered. The thieves, when overtaken, took to the bush and escaped. Hugh here. That story was in a lot of newspapers. This one's from January 5, 1866, the Nashville Daily Union. Paymaster Ellis, United States Army, was robbed at Leavenworth, Kansas, on Monday night of $30,000. The money was in a safe, which was stolen bodily. Hugh here. Ah, that's the sort of detail I'm looking for when I do my digging. As with a lot of these robberies, the robbers didn't bother trying to open the safe. They just carried the whole thing away to try to open it at their leisure. Moving forward a week, we find a follow-up article in the Emporia News of Emporia, Kansas, Saturday, January 13, 1866. 
The safe of Paymaster Ellis, containing $25,000, was recently stolen at Fort Leavenworth. The two men, named respectively Fulcher and Godfrey, were suspected, and a squad of cavalry put on the search. They were tracked up the river and found in a house opposite Atchison. The building could not be surrounded, so they managed to escape. About $20,000 were found in the house, and ear this is safely in the hands of Major Ellis. The balance, about $5,000, was about the persons of the runaways, where it is likely to remain until they are captured. All right, now we've come to the big one. This is by far the biggest and most ridiculous safe robbery of all. So I found this Syracuse Daily Standard article from Saturday morning, March 31st, 1866. I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it makes no sense out of context. Essentially, it's a story about a police officer, Marshall Westcott of Boston, who's in New York investigating a robbery. Through circumstances that remain unclear, he sees the guy that they suspect was involved in this robbery. They tail him onto the train, they search his bag, they find bonds from that robbery, and they arrest him. Now here's the part of the story that showed up in my search. The details of the robbery show it to be one of the boldest thefts ever known. Jones engaged Lord's attention while three accomplices robbed the safe. Hmm, curious. Of course, I had to follow my nose on that one. And going back a couple of weeks, we find this from the New York Herald of March 12, 1866. Stupendous robbery. One million and a half dollars in bonds stolen. Mystery of the robbery. The loss falls on two individuals. Additional particulars of the affair. Description of the stolen bonds. Two hundred thousand dollars reward. The recent great robberies. Ingenuity of the burglars. Etc., etc., etc. So this is a multi-column article with lots and lots of detail. I'm not going to read it. Instead, I'm going to skip to March 31st, 1866, the New York Herald. This is a good summary. The Great Bond Robbery. The First Arrest. How the robbery is said to have been committed, etc. From the Boston Journal, March 29th. The announcement made yesterday by Telegraph that the alleged principal of the great bond robbery of $1,500,000 had been arrested proves to be correct, and the following details of the transaction will be read with interest. The full particulars will unfold a condition of affairs which will no doubt call for a thorough reorganization of the detective system of this country into which abuses have crept, which the public good demands should be eradicated. It will be remembered that on the 10th of March, the announcement was made that the safe of Mr. Rufus L. Lord, Broker, number 38 Exchange Place, New York, was robbed of bonds amounting to a million and a half of dollars. The owner of the funds, Mr. Lord, a gentleman 80 years old, stated that he put the bonds in two tin boxes and locked his safe, and on the following morning they were gone. The safe in which they were kept was an old-fashioned one, and by no means a burglar-proof safe, and it was regarded as an evidence of the haste in which the robbery was committed that on a shelf just above the stolen bonds there were American Railroad securities to the amount of one million of dollars. 
the detectives of New York and of the whole country were on the alert, stimulated by the reward of $200,000, and it is said Mr. Lord gave a certain person power of attorney to act for him in obtaining the money by any compromise which might be thought judicious. The detective officers of the United States Marshal's Office of the New York District also undertook to investigate the matter, and thus two classes of detectives were at work, between whom there is considerable rivalry. Very little progress was made, so far as the public were informed, and Mr. Lord, being worth some six or eight millions of dollars, was almost indifferent to the recovery of the money. The regular detectives, however, were at work, and had progressed so far that it was ascertained by whom the robbery had been committed, and communication had been established with the perpetrators. It is stated that an agreement had been entered into that the robbers should visit Boston, and when here, upon the payment of a certain amount of money, they were to deliver up the bonds. This transaction, however, was not carried out, and perhaps was never contemplated, though such, we are informed, was the program. But at this period, Marshal Westcott, of Newburyport, visited New York and called upon Marshal Murray, of New York, with information which led to the arrest of one of the robbers. A week ago last Monday, Marshal Westcott, accompanied by Detectives Poor and Donchet of the United States Marshal's Office of New York, stepped aboard the train for Boston, and when some twelve miles from that city, they arrested on board of the cars a man who gives his name as Horace Brown, who has been only a year out of the Charlestown State Prison. In his baggage was found about $215,000 of the stolen bonds. The arrest was kept quiet, and instead of bringing him to Boston on the train, for precautionary reasons they got out some twelve miles from this city and came on by private conveyance, and Brown was then conveyed to Newburyport, where he remains in custody. We learn that Brown, whose real name we have not obtained, states that the robbery was not perpetrated in the nighttime, but in broad daylight. How he first obtained information of Mr. Lord's very careless manner of conducting his business, it is impossible to state. But, under pretense of leasing a room in his building, he made frequent calls upon Mr. Lord, and ascertained the exact condition of affairs. On the day the robbery was committed, he was accompanied by six accomplices, who were partners in the job, and were allotted different duties. He entered the office and found Mr. Lord seated at his table, with his back to the door, and also with his back to the safe, which was open. He engaged Mr. Lord in conversation, and the two accomplices then entered and took the bonds from the safe and went out, Mr. Lord being unaware of the presence of any other parties, owing probably to a slight deafness and the engaging conversation of Brown. In fact, Mr. Lord did not discover the loss until the next day. It is said the amount was equally divided among the seven, and, as we have intimated, it was proposed by the robbers to deliver up the whole amount for a consideration when the arrest of Brown was made, which broke up the arrangement. Thus, according to the information which we have obtained, the question turns upon the propriety of releasing Brown and securing the bonds, less the reward, or to bring Brown to justice and lose the balance of the funds. Hugh here. 
All right, so there's a lot that's still obscure, even after reading several long articles on this subject. They seem to be beating around the bush with their accusations of corruption and collusion within the police department and between the Boston police and the robbers. I'm not super clear on that, but why else would there be any reason for the marshal to avoid Boston and get off the train in Newburyport? I don't really get it, but be that as it may, get a load of this story. One and a half million dollars in bonds stolen out of a safe, not by dynamite, not by crowbars, but because an 80-year-old guy who was hard of hearing and who didn't even bother locking his safe most of the time got distracted by one criminal while the rest of the criminals went like some Hanna-Barbera character on tiptoe and stole the bonds out of the safe. This is not Ocean's Eleven. This is, this is Apple Dumpling Gang. And again, this emphasizes my point that a lot of these robberies had nothing to do with violence or explosives or threats or murders. A lot of the time it was just carelessness on the part of the people who owned these safes. So it's kind of funny that these advertisements relied so heavily upon the fear of safe crackers because the robustness of the safe in a lot of cases had nothing to do with the theft at all. Now, moving on to another spectacular theft. April 6th, 1866, Syracuse Daily Standard. Last night, the office of the Montauk Fire Insurance Company in Brooklyn, directly opposite the police headquarters, was entered by burglars. A safe broken open and robbed of $1,200 in 730 treasury notes, $60 in bills, and $10,000 in Western Railroad bonds. Wow, that's daring, right across from the police headquarters in Brooklyn. But this is interesting to me for another reason. They broke open a safe in a fire insurance company. This is like a turducken of irony. Let me explain. A couple of years ago, while doing my genealogy research, I became fascinated with the evolution of fire prevention and response. During the 1860s, urban development raced ahead of fire control technology. People were figuring out how to build bigger cities, but it would be decades before they would figure out how to keep them from erupting into uncontrolled infernos on a more or less daily basis. I did a bunch of blog posts on this subject. I'm going to link to this particular post in the show notes, but I'll read from it here. This is from Money and Fire, the story of the men and women who fight fire and those that insure against it, a thesis by John Netherland. Knowledge advanced the insurance business to its next level. Knowledge proved most valuable when companies came together in boards and associations. Before the 1870s and the forming of the National Board of Fire Underwriters, fire insurance had been hugely primitive. There were many companies that had established rating schedules and tried to identify higher risk. However, the vast majority of smaller companies set rates on guesses and their greed. These companies would fall to the conflagrations. The industry needed to spread the science behind insurance. By the time the NBFU came around, agents were known to talk and communicate with one another. Where one might have learned a hard lesson, they could then go and tell another agent what to do in a situation. 
A prime example lay in a conversation between a young agent and an old one, as told by Brearley. The young agent saw a tall row of buildings made of stone and thought that since they were made of stone, they were a good building to insure. However, the older agent saw the mansard roof responsible for burning Boston and helped the younger agent to change his mind. It is these conversations that began to change insurance into a true science instead of a semi-scientific art punctuated by gambling. All right, this is Hugh back again. So the period we're examining, the 1860s, is the heyday of fires. This is before the formation of the National Board of Fire Underwriters, so not only does the technology to prevent and fight fires not exist, but people haven't even figured out how to deal with fires and fire insurance in a quantified way. All that is the rich urban and cultural substrate within which these fires happened. That is why advertising was profitable for fireproof safe companies. All right, moving on. April 30th, 1866, Syracuse Daily Courier and Union again. Wheeling, West Virginia, April 29th. About three o'clock this morning, six burglars entered the residence of the cashier of Harrison National Bank in Cadiz, Ohio bucked and gagged that gentleman and compelled his wife to deliver up the keys of the bank and safe. Proceeding thence to the bank, they effected an entrance with much difficulty and robbed the safe of $800,000 in United States bonds and about $50,000 in deposits. After locking the watchman in the safe, they made good their escape on a hand car, cutting the telegraph wires in two places. The robbers abandoned the hand car at a station near Cundria on the Pittsburgh and Columbus Railroad and took to the woods. The surrounding country has been aroused and a large force has been sent in pursuit. $20,000 reward is offered for the arrest of the robbers. And July 12, 1866, Syracuse Daily Standard. A paymaster's safe at Washington was broken open and robbed of $10,000. Certain parties are suspected, but no arrests have been made. August 13, 1866, Syracuse Daily Journal. Robberies. An individual calling himself Charles Reinhardt ingratiated himself into the good graces of Mr. Ignatius Rice, a merchant on Broadway on Friday, and, while the latter was busily engaged with a customer, robbed his safe of $1,500 in bonds and securities. He was arrested on Saturday as he was about taking the steamer for New Orleans, and, confessing his guilt, was held to answer in the sum of $2,000. Hugh here. So again, we see two themes recurring. One, crime doesn't pay in the long term because the robber ends up getting caught. And two, social engineering really works. All right, moving on to February 16th, 1867, Syracuse Daily Courier and Union. Daring robbery, supposed capture of the robbers. The Rochester Union of Tuesday says... Sunday evening last, two men called at the house of a Western Railroad ticket agent in the village of Addison, Steuben County, and informed him that they wished to purchase a couple of tickets for Chicago. 
The agent went with the men to his office, and while he was in a stooping position opening his safe, the men struck him either with their fists or some heavy substance, rendering him insensible. They then robbed the safe of $2,000 and decamped. The agent, on returning to consciousness, made known the affair, and a description of the robbers was telegraphed along the line. This morning, policemen Bray and Egan, of Corning, observed two suspicious characters in the depot of that village, and they accosted the strangers, inquired their business, etc. The men at once turned upon their interlocutors and drew their revolvers. With the aid of a third party, however, the rascals were arrested and ironed. On their persons were found wedges, fuse, powder, jimmies, and other tools used by burglars. They will be held to await identification by the ticket agent. They are doubtless the men who assaulted him and then robbed his safe. Up to the time our informant left Corning, none of the stolen money had been recovered. Hugh here. So again, social engineering? Check. Getting a safe open without crowbars or explosive? Check. The robbers getting away with the money but then getting captured? Check. July 11th, 1867, Syracuse Daily Journal. General News. An Omaha dispatch says that on Saturday morning, some soldiers from Fort Laramie went to Rafferty's Ranch, five miles distant, and demanded whiskey, and because they refused, they threatened to burn the ranch. They then made a second demand for whiskey, and being again refused, they attacked the storekeeper, and one of their number was shot. The soldiers then formed in line and fired several shots at the ranch. Subsequently, the provost marshal, with 50 soldiers, arrested the occupants of the ranch and took the desks and safe out of the building. The safe was afterwards robbed and the ranch burned by the soldiers. The proprietor estimates his loss at $60,000. A court of inquiry has been convened to examine into the matter. Hugh here. Note that that's two years after the end of the war, and yet the military situation sounds like absolute chaos. All right, skipping forward to the Syracuse Daily Journal of August 4th, 1867. I'm going to read this whole section again because it's important to place the safe robbery in the context of the chaos of Reconstruction. Disorder in Texas Socially, morally, and politically, there is not much improvement in Middle Texas. The same old stubborn and devilish spirit, to a considerable extent, exists in this section. Let me illustrate this by some recent occurrences in the neighborhood where I write. A man by the name of Ethan Haas had some freedmen in his employ. A bell was lost from one of his oxen. He charged the Negroes with stealing it. They denied taking it. He made them pay for it, but not satisfied with this, he took with him his brother, William Haas, rode to the Negro quarter, where they found two Negro men and two women sitting together, drew their revolvers, fired upon and killed one of the men and one of the women, and shot the other woman through the breast, injuring her severely. The fourth party escaped death by flight. The Hosses rode home, and a few days after this exploit, they went over to a neighboring justice of the peace named Ed Guthrie and demanded an investigation, which resulted in their discharge. 
What would your Ohio readers think of such a justice of the peace? He is but a sample of reconstructed rebel officers in Texas. A few miles from here, there lived a substantial planter who had the reputation of being full-handed. His house was recently entered at night, and a man presented a cocked revolver and demanded his money, saying to him that he had about $6,000 in gold and must shell out or he would blow off the top of his head. To this polite and pressing request, Mr. Hobbs yielded and delivered up his money. He was then told that if he should leave the house for two hours, he would be killed. The robbers, of course, escaped with their booty. The clerk of the steamboat Como, which plies near here on the Trinity River, was, about the same time, waited upon, while the boat was tied up. He was robbed, the safe of the boat blown open, and the boat burned. The body of the pilot was afterwards found in the river, with the head split open. This crime was not so horrid as the murder of poor Mrs. Wheeler a few miles above here, and the burning up of her house, together with its contents, after they had robbed her of several hundred dollars in gold. The old lady's son had gone off with some cotton to market. This family hailed from Indiana, and the relatives there have been apprised of the facts by letters. Texas is in Sheridan's military district, and we are rather surprised that we do not hear of his endeavors to suppress disorders of this character. Perhaps we shall, before much more time elapses, the removal of Throckmorton and the appointment of Pease as governor are steps in the right direction. But another idea in this connection forces itself upon our minds. We hear considerable about the chances there are for northern people to make money by going south, and many northern papers are in the thoughtless habit of recommending migrations thither. We cannot, ourselves, as we have several times taken occasion to say, perceive the grand objects to be attained by going there. If any are so inclined, let them reflect a moment upon the disturbed condition of things in Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, and other sections of the South lately in rebellion, and it would seem as though they could not want more evidence to be satisfied that a residence in that part of the country would be the most undesirable that could be selected. Hugh here. So you see how these safe robberies connect with the overall chaos of Reconstruction? People opening newspapers at that time, especially in the North, must have been like, Oh, fuck me, I thought we were done with this bullshit. It must have seemed like the chaos of the war would never end, and that fear made advertising for burglar-proof safes profitable. Okay, moving on to August 5th, 1867, Syracuse Daily Journal. The jewelry store of S.G. Taylor in Sedalis, Missouri was entered at 3 o'clock Friday morning, and the safe blown open and robbed of about $5,000 worth of watches and other jewelry and $280 in money. No clue to the robbers has been obtained. $500 reward has been offered for their apprehension. September 23, 1867, Syracuse Daily Courier and Union. Robbery and murder! 
Kingston, Ontario, September 22nd. The night watchman at Morton's Distillery in this place was murdered last night by two or three unknown men who afterwards robbed the safe of over $1,800, mostly American silver. They have absconded with a large, black, fast sailboat called the Lily and are supposed to have gone down the river in the direction of Clayton. Now, on to January 7, 1868, where we find a sad story in the Syracuse Daily Journal. The gist of it is that Dr. Charles Cullis of Boston, a Christian who had devoted himself to philanthropy, had established a home for consumptives and a children's home. Now, here's the part about the robbery. On the 26th of December, the residence of Dr. Cullis was entered, the safe broken open and robbed of all the funds belonging to the institution, together with all the personal funds for Dr. Cullis, leaving him and the homes dependent upon him literally penniless. The letter goes on to call for donations for the doctor and for his institutions. Moving on to April 9, 1868, Syracuse Daily Journal. In Lowell, Massachusetts, on Wednesday afternoon, while J.C. Abbott, lawyer, was temporarily absent from his office, his safe was robbed of stock certificates, bonds, and other certificates valued at $25,000. So it's not clear, but that one sounds like another case of carelessness rather than safe cracking as such. Moving on to August 18, 1868. Syracuse Daily Journal. Crimes and Casualties On the night of the 30th of April last, a messenger of the Merchants Union Express Company named Putnam W. Brown was gagged in the express car on the Hudson River Railroad between Poughkeepsie and New York, and his safe robbed of some $150,000 in United States and railroad bonds. After long-continued endeavors to ferret out the perpetrators of the robbery, the detectives, on Thursday last, arrested at Toronto Dennis Thompson and wife, formerly of Buffalo, Langdon W. Moore, alias Charlie Adams and wife, Ike Marsh, alias Morton and wife, Charles Ballard, alias C.G. Thompson, and James Williams Curtin, all of whom are now lodged in jail at Toronto, Bonds, money, jewels, etc., to the value of $50,000 were found on their persons. And then there was a follow-up article to that same case on August 21, 1868, in the same paper. Canada. The Adams Express robbers were up for examination before the police magistrate of Toronto Thursday afternoon. Putnam W. Brown, the express messenger on the Hudson River Railroad, identified the two prisoners— Charles E. Thompson, and Morton, as the two men who entered, gagged and bound him, and robbed the safe. No other witnesses were examined. The case will be resumed. And that's it for the 1860s, folks. That's every case of attempted safe robbery I could find in a Syracuse newspaper for that decade. Keep in mind, that's only the cases I was able to find, and given the crappy quality of the microfilm scans, that has to be only a small fraction of the articles out there. Okay, so now that we've had a survey of safe robberies that showed up in Syracuse newspapers during the 1860s, let's circle back to that advertiser that I introduced you to at the show opener. 
Marvin's Chrome Iron Spherical Burglar Safe. In the early summer of 1868, the following ad started showing up in various newspapers around the country. If you go to the show notes, you'll see it in the New York Evening Post of May 28, 1868, and the Philadelphia Evening Telegraph of July 25, 1868. Fire and Burglar Proof Safes. Alum and Dry Plaster. Again, successful. Brooklyn, May 15, 1868. Mr. Marvin and Company, New York. Gentlemen, our planing mill with 50,000 feet of lumber was destroyed by fire last night, and we are happy to say your alum and dry plaster safe preserved our books, papers, and money in excellent order. We want another and larger one, and will call on you as soon as we have time. Yours truly, Shearman Brothers. This safe was red-hot for several hours, and the cast-iron feet were actually melted. It can be seen at our store, number 265 Broadway. Hugh here. So after some digging, I found some articles from around the time of that fire. This is from the Washington, D.C. Evening Star, Friday, May 15, 1868. Destructive Fire! New York, May 15th. Sherman's Steam Planing Mill, in Sedgwick Street, South Brooklyn, was entirely destroyed by fire early this morning. The flames spread to the packing box factory adjoining, and thence to several buildings used as offices for merchants, lawyers, and real estate agents. There are many tenement houses in the neighborhood which caught fire a number of times, and were only saved by the superhuman exertions of the firemen. 200 families were driven into the streets. The total loss is about $100,000. Now check this out. This is too good not to share. This is from about a month after the fire, July 25, 1868. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle. After the fire, the Columbia Saw and Planing Mills have again resumed business with a thorough new outfit of the most modern and approved machinery known in the market. We ask our friends to give us a call, and they can then better judge of the superior quality of the work done at our establishment, sawing and planing of every description. Also, lumber, packing boxes, etc., etc., black walnut, sycamore, and other lumber, seasoned by superheated steam, on the premises. Shearman Brothers, 3 to 19 Sedgwick Street. Hugh here. Did you catch that? They're advertising the wood that was in the building at the time of the fire as having been seasoned by superheated steam. Gotta love it. All right, moving on to August 26, 1868, we see this in the Philadelphia Evening Telegraph. Fire and burglar-proof safes. Marvin's safes. Another test. Dove's Depot. South Carolina, July 20th, 1868. Mr. William M. Byrd and Company, Agents, Marvin's Safes, Charleston, South Carolina. Gentlemen, on the night of the second instant, our store and contents were destroyed by fire, and we are pleased to say we had one of your fireproof safes, which proved to be all you recommended. The heat was so great as to melt the brass handle, 
and the plate which contains the date of the patent, but the contents were not injured. The safe contained our books, papers, and notes, and bonds to the amount of $16,000. Also, a gold watch, which had been repaired and placed therein the evening before the fire. Next day, on opening the safe, the watch was found running. It gives us great pleasure to testify to the excellent quality of your safes, as they are justly entitled to the highest confidence of the public. We are going to rebuild at once, and shall be in your city in a short time, when we shall call upon you and purchase another safe. Respectfully yours, Delorme and Dove. Hugh here. Again, I did some digging to try to find articles about that fire from around the time it happened. This time, after a lot of searching, I could find only one. This small article from the Charleston, South Carolina Daily News of July 9, 1868. Fire at Dove's Station The storehouse of Mr.'s Delorme and Dove, together with its contents, was destroyed by fire on Wednesday night last at Dove's Station on the C&D Railroad. The fire is supposed to be accidental. Florence Gazette. Hugh here. Moving forward to November 30th, 1868, we find that Martins has combined those two events into one ad. This is again from the Philadelphia Evening Telegraph. Fire and burglar-proof safes. Fireproof safes. $16,000 in money, valuable books and papers perfectly preserved through the fire of July 20th, 1868 at Dove's Depot, South Carolina in one of Marvin's safes owned by Delorme and Dove. 50,000 feet of lumber destroyed in our planing mill in Brooklyn, May 15th, 1868. All our money papers, and books saved in excellent order in a Marvin's safe, alum and dry plaster, Shearman Brothers. Both of the above were very severe tests. Hugh here. I'm just impressed as hell with the sophistication of this advertising campaign from 150 years ago. Here's their business model. One, make some safes. Two, sell some safes. Three, wait. You know a building is going to burn down around one of those safes. And when it does, 4. Incorporate a letter from the person who owned that building into your next advertisement. Genius. 150 years ago, a phenomenon that I think of as modern, the amplification and distillation of sensational events by the media, was already in full swing. Newspapers were reporting on events that happened across the country and giving people an exaggerated sense of their prevalence. And in the case of advertisers like this one, who relied upon fear, uncertainty, and doubt, they helped that process much more than the newspaper writers ever could. Conservatively speaking, this advertisement must have made thousands of people across the country aware of fires that they never would have known about otherwise. And you can tell that that fear-mongering was profitable. Check out these ads directly below the one I just read. Marquette! Marquette! Another letter from the Great Fire at Marquette. Herring's Safes! Preserve their contents where safes of other makers fail. Marquette, Michigan, July 20th, 1868. Mr. Herring and Company, 
Gentlemen, on the 11th Ultimo, the entire business portion of our town was destroyed by fire. Our safe, which was one of your manufacture, was subject to an intense heat, but proved itself adequate to the severe test. It lay in the ruins 14 days, and when taken out from its appearance, the outside covering being burned through in many places, and in view of the fact that several other safes previously taken out were entirely destroyed, it was a great surprise to us to find the contents legible and in good condition. Several orders for new safes have already been sent you, which is the best proof of this most satisfactory test, and of the confidence of this community in your safes. Respectfully yours, Wilkinson and Smith. Herrings, patent banker's champion safes, made of wrought iron and steel, and the patent Franklinite, or Spiegeleisen, the best resistant to burglar's drills or cutting instruments ever manufactured. Dwelling house safes, for silver plate, valuable papers, ladies' jewelry, etc., etc., both plain and in imitation of handsome pieces of furniture. Herrings patent safes. The champion safe for the past 27 years, the victor at the World's Fair, London, the World's Fair, New York, the Exposition Universelle, Paris, and winner of the wager of 30,000 francs at the recent international contest in Paris are made and sold only by the undersigned and our authorized agents. Farrell, Herring, and Company, Philadelphia, Herring, Farrell and Sherman, New York, Herring and Company, Chicago, Herring, Farrell and Sherman, New Orleans. Hugh here, so that was one big ad for a competing safe company, and now we see a third one right below that. C.L. Miser, manufacturer of fire and burglar-proof safes, locksmith, bell hanger, and dealer in building hardware, number 434 Race Street. Hugh here. So can you see the synergy between fire and burglary? As I said, fire was prevalent. So when I say that they were fear-mongering, I don't mean that that fear was entirely unfounded, just that it was magnified through the lens of advertising. Of the two fears, I would say that fire was the more rational one, and the fear of burglars was the icing on the cake of enticement that pushed people over the edge into purchasing a safe. All right, moving on to October 19, 1868, we see an advertisement from the Utica Morning Herald, just a hop, skip, and a jump from where I grew up in a night in New York. Safes. Marvin's Chrome Iron Spherical. Burglar safes. Will resist all burglar's implements for any length of time. Please send for catalog of fire and burglar-proof safes. Marvin and Company. Now I'm going to move on to a bunch of material that I found in Google Books that illustrate the richness of the advertising ecosystem in the 1860s. I found this 1868 book, History of New York City, From the Discovery to the Present Day, by William L. Stone. This is a 354-page book, 252 pages of which is actual history, and the rest 29% of the book is advertisements. I expect to see this sort of thing in other formats, but a history book? 
That's remarkable to me, but this sort of thing was common at the time. Businesses were always looking for a way to exploit any form of printed material to make advertisements. Of course, they don't call it advertising. They call it supplement, containing the prominent mercantile houses and corporate bodies that have contributed materially in the growth and prosperity of New York City. I can't help myself. I'm going to read this whole full-page ad from Marvin and Company because I just love the florid language. Marvin and Company. Safes. 265 Broadway, New York. Among the most prominent businessmen of New York is the firm of Marvin and Company, fire and burglar-proof safe manufacturers, whose safe now stands without an equal. The business was commenced in 1842 by Mr. A.S. Marvin, who carried it on for about 20 years, when he retired, leaving it in the hands of his son, Walter K. Marvin, who is now the head of the present firm in New York. Within the past few years, Mr. Marvin has materially improved the manufacture of his safe by the addition of several valuable patents, and the appreciation by the public of their efforts to serve them has been such as to compel them to purchase a very extensive building that will afford them abundance of room and increased facilities for manufacturing safes in large quantities. They seem to have spared no expense in fitting up their new establishment, which is situated in West 37th Street, near 9th Avenue, and is the largest building of its kind in the United States. Their safes are constructed of the best refined wrought iron welded together with heavy angle iron corners, imported for their exclusive use instead of cast iron corners so often used. For nothing but the very best and strongest safes will withstand the heavy iron girders and columns now used in our buildings when falling during a fire. Among the most important improvements made by Mr. Marvin is the invention for filling safes with alum and dry plaster, thus combining the excellencies of the best two fillings heretofore used in fireproof safes, at the same time avoiding the defects and injurious qualities of either of those articles used separately. Cement, lime, Plaster, marble dust, and similar materials have been used as filling, being put into the safe wet. The moisture, combined with them, soon rusts holes through the iron of the safes, renders their interior constantly damp, molding books and destroying papers. Another serious objection to this kind of filling is that it becomes dry in a few years, thus losing its fireproof qualities. This mixture of dry calcined plaster of Paris with the suitable proportion of alum, as patented by W.K. Marvin, is packed tightly between the inner and outer cases of the safe, where it will remain unchanged for any number of years, unless a fire occurs. At that time, the alum is melted and, being 50% of water held in crystallization, gives off the steam and moisture necessary for the perfect preservation of the contents. The leading chemists and scientific men in the country have pronounced this composition to be the very best in the known world for the filling of fireproof safes. The last safe improvement is Marvin's Chrome Iron Spherical Burglar Safe, which is truly burglar-proof, from its shape being the principle of the double arch. 
it completely defies the sledgehammer and wedges, and the chrome iron is so hard that it is perfectly impervious to drills or acids. The only hole in the safe when the door is locked and the double bolts thrown is a small hole in the center of the door made in a conical or tapering form for the spindle that works the lock. This cannot be driven in, nor wedged out, nor drilled into. The Misters Marvin feel sure that they now have the best safe in the world without any exception and are prepared to furnish them of all sizes at either of their stores in New York, Philadelphia, or Cleveland, or any of their agencies throughout the country. Hugh here. By the way, go to the show notes and you'll see some photos of these safes. They're really impressive to look at. Moving on to 1868, we see an advertisement in the Commercial and Financial Chronicle, Banker's Gazette, Commercial Times, Railway Monitor, and Insurance Journal, a weekly newspaper representing the industrial and commercial interests of the United States. It's another one of those ads that includes the letter from Shearman Brothers after their planing mill was burned. Now here's another interesting book that is essentially a vehicle for advertisers. 1868. Todd's Country Homes and How to Save Money to Buy a Home, How to Build Neat and Cheap Cottages, and How to Gain an Independent Fortune Before Old Age Comes On, with a description of the wonderful agricultural and horticultural advantages of New Jersey, including also a business directory by Sereno Edwards Todd. This one has two full-page ads. The first is for Marvin's Patent Alum and Dry Plaster Fire and Burglar Proof Safes. Do not corrode the iron, mold the contents, or lose their fireproof qualities. They are the only safe filled with alum and dry plaster. Please send for an illustrated catalog. Here's the second page. Marvin's Chrome Iron Spherical Burglar-Proof Safes are now admitted to be the best burglar-proof safes in the world. Every merchant, banker, or anyone who has bonds and other valuables to preserve should have one of these safes. Call and examine them at Marvin and Company's Ware Rooms. Hugh here. One other point I wanted to make. Note all the talk about bonds. A lot of those bonds are railroad bonds. So think about that. The increased transportation opportunities afforded by the burgeoning railroad system in the wake of the Civil War also made the burglars that much more mobile. Also, a lot of these railroads depended financially upon town bonds. So any safe you happen to choose had a pretty good likelihood of containing expensive banknotes. Now, on to the Scientific American of July 1st, 1868. This is a spectacular example of the state of the art of lithography at the time. Look at this sucker in the show notes. It's really impressive. Here's the accompanying article. Improved burglar-proof safe. It is generally conceded that safes for the reception of valuables and papers can be made to withstand the action of fire under almost any circumstances. But the burglar has hitherto defied all attempts to make the safe secure against his systematic attacks, especially if time enough was allowed him for his operations. 
In the great trial at the Paris Exposition, less than five hours sufficed for the opening of the burglar-proof safe submitted for competition. The sledge and wedge in skillful hands proved superior to bolts, combination locks, and hardness of material. Marvin and company, the well-known safe manufacturers, have just contrived a safe which they allege to be perfectly burglar-proof. It is shown in the accompanying engravings of which one is a perspective view and the other a partially sectional view. The material of the safe is the well-known chrome iron, the ore of which occurs in masses and crystallized, and is so hard, when melted and cast, that no tool known to the mechanic can penetrate its structure. It can be worked only by the abrasion of grinding. In form, the safe is a globe, hollow and resembling a spherical mortar shell, the opening for the fuse forming the aperture for the door which fits airtight, being ground to place. The safes are made of various sizes and may be placed in vaults or in the ordinary fireproof safe. The thickness of the metal varies according to the diameter of the safe, being in some instances four inches thick. Its form, that of the double arch or perfect sphere, makes it impervious to the heaviest blows of the sledge. The door, being fitted on a series of tapers and shoulders, as seen in the section, precludes the use of wedges or chisels, and being built of wrought iron and the best hardened steel, it cannot be chipped or drilled. The lock spindle is also made of hardened steel and of tapering form, so that it cannot be driven in. Each safe is furnished with one or more shelves, seen in the sectional view, and a patent combination lock. By the use of this safe, banks, insurance companies, and merchants may be assured of security for their valuables. A number can be placed in a fireproof vault, each officer or proprietor having one for his special use. This safe was patented March 19, 1867. Orders may be addressed to Marvin and Company, 265 Broadway, New York City, 721 Chestnut Street, Philadelphia, or 108 Bank Street, Cleveland, Ohio. Hugh here. Moving on to October 1868, we see another full-page ad in the Overland Monthly, devoted to the development of the country. And then on November 6, 1868, we see that same amazing engraving of the safe in the Mechanics Magazine, along with a small write-up. In November of 1868, the Overland Monthly has another big ad. And in 1869, we see a fancy full-page ad in Smith's Handbook and Guide in Philadelphia. This one is the same one that has a summary of both the Shearman Brothers and Delorme and Dove fires. Marvin and company really milked that Shearman Brothers fire. On January 2nd, 1869, that advertisement was printed again in the Commercial and Financial Chronicle. And then, January 20th, 1869, there's this long multi-page article in the American Artisan, that I'm going to save for last. Skipping forward to May 3rd, 1869, we see again three competing safe companies advertising in the same column. This is from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Fireproof safes. Champion safes. Unsuccessful burglary. Letter of Mr. David Dows and Company. New York, April 10th, 1869. Herring, 
Farrell and Sherman, number 251 Broadway. Gentlemen, on the night of the 22nd Ultimo, our store, number 20 South Street, was entered and a desperate attempt made by burglars upon one of your safes in our counting room. The key to the safe in which we kept our securities was locked inside of our fireproof book safe, the doors of which were literally cut to pieces. From this they obtained the key to the other safe and opened it. Fortunately, we had one of your burglar-proof banker's chests inside, in which our valuables were deposited. This they went to work at with a will, and evidently used up all their time and tools in vain attempts to force it. The night was dark and stormy, and the fact of their knowing where our key was kept shows that their plans were well matured. They tried wedging the door and body of the chest, and the faithful safe bears evidence of the labor and skill devoted to the work. All was useless, and it is with great satisfaction we report that upon opening it, we found our securities all safe and can, therefore, cheerfully endorse the burglar-proof work recommended by you. You will please send the new safe purchased by us to our counting house, and take the old one to show that some safes are still manufactured worthy of the name. David Dows and Company. Herring's patent champion safes, the most reliable security from fire now known, manufactured and sold by Farrell, Herring and Company, Philadelphia. Herring, Farrell, and Sherman, number 251 Broadway, New York. Herring and Company, Chicago. Herring, Farrell, and Sherman, New Orleans. Now here's the Marvin's ad right below that. Marvin's. Patent alum and dry plaster fireproof safes are most desirable for quality, finish, and price. Marvin's chrome iron spherical burglar safes cannot be sledged, cannot be wedged, cannot be drilled. Please send for a catalog to Marvin and Company, number 721 Chestnut Street, Masonic Hall, Philadelphia, number 265 Broadway, New York, number 106 Bank Street, Cleveland, Ohio. Second-hand safes of all makes for sale low. Safes and machinery moved. And here's a third company advertising right below that one. Severe test and great triumph of Miser's Fireproof Safes at the great fire and entire destruction of the Mammoth Skating Rink, 21st and Race Streets. The Miser Safe, used by Mr. Proskauer, the caterer, at the great Odd Fellows Ball, was taken from the ruins the day after the fire and opened on the ground before an immense crowd of spectators. Notwithstanding that it had been at a white heat for a long time, the contents were found to be wholly uninjured. The hero has returned to his companions at Miser's Safe Store, number 424 Race Street, where he can be examined. Now, on June 18, 1869, we see in the New York Tribune that Marvin's had another staged test of one of their safes. A test extraordinary! A test extraordinary! A test extraordinary! A test extraordinary! From the New York Penn Democratic Press of June 4, 1869. A burglar-proof safe! The First National Bank, on Tuesday, placed in their vault one of Marvin & Company's chrome-iron spherical burglar-proof safes. 
The safe was sold to the bank, subject to such test as the directors saw fit to put it to. The bank employed Major Epley, one of the best machinists in this section of the country, to drill the safe if possible. The Major, with the assistance of his son, spent several hours in preparing his drills and tools, and, having secured a strong leverage, went to work, and after entirely using up his drills, and hardly making an impression on the safe, gave his opinion that drilling through inside of two weeks was out of the question. Misters Small, Bill Meyer, and company were called upon for three of their best blacksmith strikers, who were furnished with heavy sledges. They commenced whacking away in regular forge style, dealing blows that were heard for squares, but with no effect on the safe. It may be imagined with what strength they dealt their blows when they were sufficient to crack the sledge and render it useless. The trial created quite an excitement, and all were satisfied that a burglar-proof safe had at last been found. We see that same ad in the Evening Post on Friday, June 11, 1869. And on February 3, 1871, we see in the Philadelphia Legal Gazette the following. Marvin's Safes, the best quality, the lowest prices, the largest assortment, Fireproof! Burglar-proof! Astonishing! Among the many matters of surprise that almost daily meet our wondering eyes, one that is worthier of an abler pen is false security of businessmen, trusting their money, valuables, and stocks in some dilapidated rusty box, with lock constructed on the ancient plan used for dog collars since the fall of man, a button-hook might pick its secret spring. A sidelet's powder would blow up the thing. Others a sort of fishy fabrics get, good for aquariums being always wet, in which their books and documents will mold, and make an excellent manure when old. What need of risk when any man may buy a perfect safe whereon he can rely? Marvin's new sphericals of odd design, strength, dryness, durability combine. In fireproofs fixed beyond the reach of flame, preeminently safe in more than name. Now, moving forward to April 28, 1871, we see from the Legal Gazette another ad that shows there's been another fire. Tremendous fire! Marvin's safe, always safe. New York, March 27, 1871. Mr. Marvin and Company. Gentlemen, our store was entirely destroyed by the extensive conflagration of last Saturday night, corner of Canal and Mott Streets. The fire was intensely hot, owing to the inflammable nature of the stock, being all furniture and upholstery goods. We are glad to say that all our books and valuable papers were preserved in perfect order in one of your alum and dry plaster safes, which certainly sustained their good reputation. Yours truly, Wagner, Schneider, and Co. Hugh here. That fire turned out to be a really big one. Going back to the time of the fire, March 27, 1871, we see the following in the Hudson Daily Star. The six-story brick building, numbers 185, 187, and 189 Canal Street, corner of Mott, was entirely destroyed by fire last night. 
The first floor and basement of 185 and 187 were occupied by Wagner, Schneider, and Co., importers and dealers in upholstery goods, and manufacturers of furniture springs, whose loss is about $60,000, insurance unknown. The remainder of the building was occupied by Frank Rohner and Co., dealers in furniture, loss $60,000, partially insured. The building was owned by Wagner, Schneider and Co., and was erected a short time since at a cost of $90,000, and is a total loss. These fires are of an annual occurrence, but that of yesterday was the most extensive which has occurred for 20 years. The origin is usually attributed to passing locomotives. Hugh here. Note two important points in that article. First, again, the obsession with insurance. There's an almost grisly fascination with what was lost and how much of that was covered. Second, that last sentence. The origin is usually attributed to passing locomotives. That's true. Sparks from passing trains often caused fires. So, as the railroad system is expanding, as the cities are getting bigger and more packed, so is the risk of fire increasing. The next day, the New York Evening Express ran an article about that fire, the second paragraph of which focused on those same loss and insured numbers. But get a load of this first paragraph. Two steamers are at work upon the ruins of Wagner, Schneider, and Co.'s warehouse, destroyed by fire Saturday night. This morning, the safe containing the papers of the firm was found. It could not be opened, nor was it possible to ascertain whether it had been much damaged. Hugh here. Yep, that's right. A day or two after the fire, the newspapers are already reporting on the condition of the safe. So, people are obsessed with this. If you go to the show notes, you'll see a third article that's much longer. It goes into detail on the fire, the loss, the insurance amounts, and then ends with the following account of the human loss. The three-story buildings, 99 and 101 Mott Street, which were almost totally destroyed by the falling of the rear wall of 185 Canal Street, were occupied by several poor families. William Stevens, with a wife and four children, has been left entirely destitute, and a man named Gillespie, with a wife and two children, are left homeless. Mr. O'Donnell, who occupied the first floor of 101 Mott Street, is probably insured. Several workmen also lost their tools, which loss is not covered by insurance. William Stevens, wife, and four children were turned into the street. Mr. Stevens is entirely destitute. Any assistance will be gratefully received. Hugh here. So all these articles about fires give you a sense of the atmosphere within which these ads flourished. Okay, moving on. On February 15th, 1871, there's a write-up in the American Artisan. In 1876, the International Exhibition Reports and Awards has a little write-up. And in 1884, Knight's American Mechanical Dictionary has that same set of engravings along with a little write-up. I'm not going to read any of those because they more or less have the same information that you will find in this fantastic piece that I saved for last. This is from The American Artisan, 
January 20th, 1869. How Fireproof Safes Are Made The manufacture of fire and burglar-proof safes has, within the past 30 years, assumed proportions little dreamed of by those who originated and built up the business, and is now participated in by men whose names have been made known all over the world by the products of their workshops. Among the firms that have achieved high standing in this department of manufacturing industry is that of Marvin & Company of New York City, whose extensive factory and improved safes we propose briefly to sketch. The works, located in 37th Street in the city above named, are contained within a large rectangular building where all the manifold operations involved in making the finished and ornamental depository for valuables are carried on. The basement is divided into several apartments, in one of which is situated the 30-horsepower steam engine from which, through the agency of a 14-inch belt, the power is transmitted to long lines of shafting that, in their turn, operate the numerous machines arranged in different parts of the structure. In an adjacent room is a place for the storage of coal by the cargo. Close to this is a separate room for the boiler of the engine, and only a step distant, one in which the material employed in filling the safes is stored, from 100 to 200 tons being, as a general rule, kept as a stock on hand. On the same level is a stable which affords accommodations for the half-dozen heavy draft horses kept constantly employed in hauling the safes from the factory to the warehouse, and from thence to different points of shipment. The basement is not, however, wholly given up to such adjunctive purposes as we have mentioned, but a portion of the active manufacturing operations are carried on in some of the rooms. Here, for instance, is the apparatus by which the great plates of thick sheet metal, of which the sides of the safes are formed, are taken in their primitive warped condition and made straight and true. A small trip hammer plies with quick strokes upon a flat, broad-faced anvil, upon which the metal sheet or plate is laid. A workman, his hands protected by rags, tightly grasped upon the edges of the plate, deftly turns the latter until every part has been subjected to the action of the hammer, and all the curves and twists in the contour of the plate have been taken out. This is done by hand in other establishments of similar character, but the operation of the trip hammer is much more efficient, and does its work much more rapidly than if swung by mere bone and muscle. Contiguous to the apparatus just described is a shearing machine, which will cut iron plates an inch thick and ten feet long, with as much apparent ease as a pair of scissors will divide a piece of common cardboard. The essential feature of this machine, aside from the devices by which the main parts are moved, lies in a sharp-edged rotary cutting disc carried by a sliding frame. The disc is moved past, but in contact with a fixed shear edge upon which the material is supported while the disc in its movement cuts it through. The boiler iron, which, for the most part, this machine is designed to separate into plates of the several sizes required for the various kinds of safes, is sometimes accumulated until 200 or 300 tons are piled up in convenient proximity to the machine. On the same basement floor, and of facile access from the room last mentioned, is the blacksmith's shop, where the small forgings are made. 
Here, besides the three forges whose fires are supplied with air by a fan blower, is a furnace for hardening steel, and a machine which takes a hot bar of iron, bites it into pieces of uniform length, and then bends the pieces into angular knees, which are used in uniting and strengthening the corners of the iron safes when put together. The blacksmith's shop, like every other shop in this well-ordered establishment, must have its reservoir of stock to draw upon, and hence the next room to mention in this connection is the one adjacent, where stores of bar iron, round, square, and angle, are laid away, some piled upon racks, and some thrown in oblong, grimy heaps upon the ground. Leaving the basement for the floor above, we enter rooms where 120 feet of shafting whirl the driving pulleys of the different machines used for changing the form of metal plates and bars to fit them for their destined functions. Here is a hand shear for trimming the ragged edges of the plates, and at a little distance a heavy power apparatus of the same kind, capable of severing a wrought iron bar two inches thick, and a worthy neighbor of the punching press that pokes a one and a half inch hole through an inch of solid iron. Nearby is a smaller punch for lighter work, and anon we come to the apparatus which smooths the plates from rust and inequalities upon their surfaces and which may be separately though briefly sketched. The ends of the angle irons which fasten the four sides of a safe together require to be made square and flat. This is done by holding them in contact with the flat side of a rapidly rotating grindstone, which grinds them to the required form, the irons being, meanwhile, supported by a suitable rest placed alongside of the stone. Four of these grinding devices are in operation in the works, and much labor in filing is economized by their use. The means applied in polishing the exterior surface of the safe is more elaborate, and consists in an emery wheel mounted upon a kind of swinging frame which allows it a vibrating or rectilinear movement simultaneous with its rotary motion. Under this mechanism and in the floor is provided a turntable upon which the safe is placed while being polished and by which it may be turned to any required position with reference to the emery wheel. This turntable works in a heavy platform which is capable of being raised to a level with the floor to permit the safe to be moved upon the turntable or of being lowered to any extent required in bringing the top or upper surface of the safe properly under the emery wheel. This apparatus is so strong and operated with such power that safes weighing 18 tons are raised and lowered by its use. The safe having been placed upon the turntable as just set forth, the rotating emery wheel is caused to pass in contact with every part of the surface of its several sides, and by its abrasive action quickly brings them to a smooth and polished condition. There are two of these machines in the works, each of which is said to be capable of doing more work than 25 men could perform by the old method, involved in the use of the rubbing stone and file. It should have been mentioned that the safes in the skeleton stage, at which they are thus polished, are put together on the same floor where the polishing machines are situated, but when brought to this point in their production, they are brought upon an elevator and by it lifted to the floor above. On this last is the machine shop proper, having a hundred feet of shafting and furnished with the drills, 
punches, screw cutters, and similar pieces of mechanism required in the various minor mechanical operations involved in completing the ironwork of the safe. Among others of this class was a fine screw-cutting lathe, in charge of a chubby, toe-headed boy whose years were evidently no more in number than the inches of a foot rule. The little fellow showed great professional pride in the operation of the machine and turned out work that would be a credit to a skilled workman of mature age. On the floor of the machine shop, in various stages of construction, lay several specimens of the spherical chrome-iron safes recently introduced by Messrs. Marvin and Company, and worthy of extended notice as well for their simple and unique design as for the absolute security against the attacks of burglars which is claimed for them. These safes are represented externally and in section in figures 1 and 2 of the accompanying engravings, being of spherical or globular form, which affords no salient portions for assault. The material is the best chrome iron, which from its extreme hardness cannot be drilled, and the door, small and of circular form, is made of the best cast steel, and is turned and ground until it fits into its place with greater closeness than hinged doors can be made to close. The door is held in its place by a combination lock, the operating spindle of which is of tapering form, so that it cannot be driven in or dislodged from its place. These spherical safes, when designed simply as burglar proofs, are mounted upon low-wheeled platforms, as represented in the figures above alluded to, but in other cases they are placed within rectangular fireproof safes, as shown in figure 3, thus giving double security against fire and thieves. We have thus far followed the safe in the progress of its formation until it rises on the elevator to an upper floor. But we may now pause for a brief mention of some of the distinctive features which render it strong against the prowling robber and the assaults of the flames which the ancients classed as one of the four primitive elements of nature. The first, to speak in general terms, is secured by discarding all chilled cast iron, which has been found but slight protection against the sharp teeth of burglars' tools, and substituting, in its place, layers of hard, tempered bars of steel, each layer of bars being ranged at right angles to the next with heavy boiler iron plates between. By so arranging the rivets that none of them pass quite through any portion of the safe by which they cannot be drilled or punched out, and by the use of a combination lock, in the fabrication of which great care and skill have been expended. The fireproof qualities are secured by the peculiar nature of the filling used, which is composed of calcined plaster and alum, which, when heated, gives water of crystallization, this being converted into steam, the presence of which preserves the contents of the safe. The advantages claimed for this filling over others that have been brought into use for the same purpose are that it does not cause the contents of the safe to mold, it does not rust the iron, and under all circumstances remains perfectly fireproof. The operative in whose charge the filling of the safes is placed has been employed in the same line for 19 successive years, and is understanding orders that the operation shall in every instance be performed in the most careful and thorough manner. 
When the iron skeleton of the safe has been filled with the fireproof material, and in the shop to which it has been raised has had the minor but essential parts fitted upon it, and has received the lock upon which the safety of its contents depends, it is ready for the internal cabinet work, the nice little shelves and the neat little drawers that serve such convenient purpose for the reception of banknotes, stocks, and bonds, for those who have the fortune to possess them. We therefore mount another flight of stairs to the woodshop, where this work is carried on. Of course, the first in order here is the lumber room, where oak, walnut, and other kinds of stuff are stowed away to season, and in one corner of which there lay a large and shaggy dog, whose duty it is to patrol the works at night, and assist the watchman in taking care of any marauding scamp who may enter to carry off a safe. The woodworking shop is furnished with a number of machines, some of them of simple and others of unique design, but all working in the most efficient manner to shape wood cheaply into the forms required. A huge plane, placed on one side and moved to and fro by a pitman, serves to truly joint the boards. A tonguing and grooving device, formed for the most part of two rapidly rotating, serrated discs, enables the jointed edges of two boards to be fitted snugly and tightly together, and a dovetailing machine of ingenious make dovetails the pieces of wood so deftly that one man can make daily a greater number of the little drawers for the safes than a quarter of a hundred men could do in the same time a few years ago. It may be mentioned that in this shop also is a kiln in which the wood is kiln-dried, only the best and most thoroughly seasoned material being used for work of this kind. Yet another flight of stairs, unless we choose to go up on the hoist or elevator that moves up and down from the base of the roof of the building, and we come to another machine shop, the one where the locks are made, a place filled with vices and lathes, and devices too varied and too numerous to mention, but all useful in the fabrication of locking apparatus, and worthy of admiration for the ingenuity shown in their design and the skill displayed in their construction. On the same floor is another room used for storing lumber, also one where the patterns of different kinds are kept, and also a large water tank, a provision against the dangers of fire, and a source of water supply which makes the establishment, in a measure, independent of the croton. In the immediate vicinity of the rooms of which we have been speaking is a small apartment placed in the charge of the foreman. Here are laid away the valuable tools when not in use, and arranged along the walls are cabinets which hold a supply of $5,000 worth of locks ready to be fitted to the safes when needed. We have now traced the safe from the shearing of the plates which form its solid sides until it stands before us in its grim and enduring strength, steel-ribbed and filled in with materials more fire-resisting than the livid skin of the fabled salamander. But it yet needs that external finish so necessary to gratify the eye of taste and ensure the approval of the dealer. We pass long rows of unfinished safes, glance at two or three workmen who fit cast-iron leaves and flowers upon flat panels by means of countersunk screws, and walk on to the painting room, a large, airy, 
Quiet apartment, where no clang of hammer or sound of machinery is heard, only the sizzling of the steam from the heater and the dull rubbing of the pumice stone, from which the iron surfaces receive their last smoothing before having the paint applied. The painters, some with large brushes spreading the ground layer of dingy paint upon the bare metal, others with camel hair pencils brought to a fine point, create on the prepared surface graceful groups of bright and warmly tinted flowers, and, leaving the artists to their quiet work, we turn away, for only a few slight touches more, and the great and little safes whose manufacture we have been describing will be completed. Hugh here. I know that was a lot, but I had to share it with you for two reasons. First, I am a sucker for florid 19th century writing. And the apotheosis of florid 19th century writing is just this sort of puff piece. But the second reason is that I feel this article drives home the sheer magnitude of time and expense and effort spent on making these facilities in Manhattan just six blocks north of where I work today. All that energy was spent in response to that fear, uncertainty, and doubt that I've been talking about, the cultural, technological, and industrial conditions that came together to form a rich substrate within which fires happened. Add to that the technology and violence intrinsic to the Civil War and the chaos of Reconstruction, and you have this ideal set of conditions within which advertisers came up with the most remarkably sophisticated advertising campaigns 150 years ago. I'm going to leave you with one last crowning irony, which I only discovered yesterday. You know that factory on West 37th I just read about? It burned down in 1885. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope someone out there enjoys the fruits of my insanely compulsive research. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he stole away. 